by grace. Well, we'll be in Colossians today, if you want to turn there. The book of Colossians chapter 1. In our home, we have a practice of reading through the Bible. We'll read a a chapter of scripture after dinner, have maybe a little discussion about it. And lately, we've been reading through Deuteronomy, and we came across something pretty cool um, in the law. And, And God doesn't have to give us an explanation of why things are righteous or unrighteous, and we can come to our conclusions, I suppose. But there's one that he, in particular, he says, why? Uh, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 19 and 20, he talks about if you are besieging a city that's warring against you, that you're to make a difference between a fruit tree and a non-bearing fruit tree. It says, if you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food may you destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it's subdued. So it's, it's like... That tree had to be planted a long time before they would ever be besieging the city. And it's God's gracious provision for his people uh, way ahead of time that they would have food to sustain them in the siege, that they'd be victorious. And they were to make a difference. And even as they made a difference between a fruit tree and a non-fruit-bearing tree, God made a difference between his people and all other nations. And he was going to provide for them. He was going to help them. And I love that it was beforehand, because it takes a long time for a tree to grow and to bear fruit. And uh, God said, this is for you. This is for your food. And God has provided for us physically and spiritually before we knew we needed him, and continually after we have known him. And how good it is that our God, he sustains us, he provides for us, he gives us everything that we need by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the truth of it, that you are righteous and good, and you have, you have taken great thought of our needs, and you know our needs better than we do. Thank you that you're able to meet them, and that you're able to not just give us fruit to eat, but to make our lives fruitful through the gospel, that the sacrifice of Jesus, the fruit of that, can be borne out in our lives in many ways, and you redeem even our pains for good, even as you did Jesus. Thank you for uh, your great blessings, for the truth of your scripture, for the power of the Holy Spirit, for the fellowship we can have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for making us one, and may you speak to our hearts. Please fill us with your spirit, Lord, as we look to you in worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians, following on from Ephesians. So both prison epistles. They were written in, those time, in that time, around 62 AD. The church in Colossae met in Philemon's home, and Paul sent this letter by Epaphras, who was the pastor of that church. And Paul, while he was imprisoned, had many people who were assisting him and helping him, and he was one of those. Ephesians is very focused on the believer and the believer's position in Christ, and Colossians goes to, be, to focusing on Jesus being our all in all, that it's not just who we are in him, but who he is and, and our need for Christ. 
And he's taking aim throughout this whole book at a lot of false doctrines that had begun to creep and worm their way into the church through the Gnostics. And, and the people were pressured, being a Gentile culture, from these traditional and pagan worldviews and um, all these philosophies and religious practices of the day to kind of mash them all together. And this is a letter that, that pushes back against that. Some see it as a polemic, which is like a letter to take aim at something, and it might be to some extent. But the Gnostics was a, bi a big issue in that time. And I think that same philosophy can be in the church or in people today. And one aspect of it is that it did not believe in the authority of the Scripture. They believed, they believed that the Bible had been corrupted because it had been passed down from generations, that it was full of lies, that it took spiritual, special spiritual knowledge and human um, intuition to really know the truth. And uh, they believed the natural world to be evil, but spiritual things to be good. And that it wasn't really God that created the world, but it was a series of emanations that came forth from God. And one of these emanations being corrupted then made a, a world that's corrupted. So in some of us, there's a, there's a spark that's trying to get back to God. And if you read about it, none of the Gnostics really agreed with each other. It's extremely confusing. And so there was just this hodgepodge of ideas and beliefs that had been uh, adopted by some in the church. And he's, a, he's addressing this to the church so that they would see that all we need is in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God, and he has come, and he's the one who gives us salvation. And the thing that was really tricky was many of these people who had been misled into these various doctrines, they were proud of their knowledge and considered themselves super saints that needed to be taught by no man. So they were very resistant to teaching. And Paul, never having been to Coloss, there's no record that he went there. He may have, but he's writing mostly to people he's never met before to instruct them in the ways of God, to show them Jesus Christ, that he alone is necessary for salvation, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So we're going to go through the first 12 verses today. And since there is a shortage of periods, I'm just going to read through this passage together, and then we'll go through it bit by bit. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Coloss, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, 
being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So this is part of the introduction. He goes on in the second part of this chapter to really uh, focus on Christ and who Christ is. We'll save that for next time. But he starts in verse 1, that he's an apostle by, of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy. So it's addressed from both he and Timothy. And he says, I'm apostle by Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he's not a self-proclaimed expert. He doesn't harken back to his Pharisee background and, and trot out all his diplomas or his uh, achievements, the things that he's attained, who his teacher was, things that would have perhaps given him some status. Uh, he doesn't provide a tally of the churches he was involved with planting or uh, letters of recommendation from Peter or John. When people write books, they, they'll often, uh, in, the, in the foreword, they'll have someone write a foreword for them, or they'll have a bunch of blurbs from well-known authors. And uh, it's not just the guy on the street, right? It's someone with, with a PhD or someone who's experienced in this subject who says, this book's really valuable, it's really useful, this is what we need today. And there's a, there'll be a bit of those, and he doesn't do that. He just lets the Holy Spirit speak as he writes this letter. So his words will be judged upon the truth of God's word. And uh, it's addressed to the saints and faithful brethren in Colossus. So he's not addressing people who are lost or on the fence. He's talking to people who are genuinely born again. They're solid disciples. And that shows that we, too, can be susceptible to error in belief and practice. We need the instruction and correction from the Word of God and from other believers. And uh, there's a lot of risk in the world. There are a lot of false doctrines swirling around. There's a lot of heresy that uh, we can drift into or even ch uh, a shift of focus from the main tenets of the gospel to these sidetracks and rabbit trails and begin to lose focus of Jesus and who he is, what he's promised. It's only in heeding God's word that we can keep to the good old paths of the gospel and walk in them. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to do it, right, to practice it. Because the gospel is not just what starts us on this spiritual walk with God. It's really the course that we are to run. Because by grace, we have been saved through faith. We are to give that faith and walk, give that grace to others that we have received. The forgiveness we've received, we're to forgive others. Jesus has shown compassion on us, so we're to be compassionate to others. Jesus served and washed the disciples' feet, so we ought to serve one another. He offers grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The one true God, he is the sole source of both. He's the only way we can have grace. That's favor and good standing with God. It's, it's favor we do not deserve and we cannot earn. Peace is to join, to prosper, or to be at rest with God and his people. And he hones in with, as we'll see throughout this letter, just a laser focus on Jesus because false teachers, they had muddied the waters. They had polluted them in pointing to all these things you had to do to find favor with God or 
uh, like the Jews, for instance, they persisted in saying, well, trust in Jesus, but you also need to keep the law. You need to be circumcised. Philosophy. It kept moving the goalposts around and then started debating whether they existed at all or if they should exist. So there was all this confusion where God had brought, if you think about it, a thousand cooks in the kitchen churning out a bunch of flavor, but without milk for the the young and meat for the mature, that's, that's the condition where they found themselves, just going in all these different directions. Countless interpretations, opinions, practices of influencers, so-called experts, people from various backgrounds bringing their own ideas in. And Paul writes this to, to refocus them on Jesus Christ, that he is God, and God is the Father. So the, those two parts of the Godhead. I guess you could say it was a lot like the internet today. There's some good stuff there. There's some insightful Christian uh, teachings, blogs, podcasts. But there's a lot of chaff to sift through. There's a lot of stuff that's not true. And so we, we can't just believe it because there's this expert speaking. But is it the word of God? Is it truth? And in our quest for knowledge, it's very easy to start going down these rabbit trails and lose sight of Jesus. Verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. In verse 2, Paul thanked God our Father. In verse 3, he says, God the Father of Jesus Christ. So they were sons of God through faith in him, but Jesus was also the Son of God. He was divine and human. See, the Gnostics denied both. They denied the, the deity of Christ as spoken of in Scripture, and they also they said he was, he was just not a real person because, again, with that Gnostic ideal, anything spiritual is good, things that are physical are corrupted. So he could not have been God if he was flesh, but he was flesh. And he had to be to die and to rise from the dead. There's only one mention in this area of the Holy Spirit, and that's in verse 8. And it's likely that Paul did not emphasize the Holy Spirit here as he does in other books of the Scripture because the believers in Colossus were very much into spiritual things. That was right in their wheelhouse. That was the place where they loved to really dig into. And as we'll see, they were, they were worshiping angels and praying to angels and thinking that, well, because God is so awesome and so holy, there's levels that you have to go through to reach him. All these series of things you must do to really know God. And it was based upon the things you did or the spirits that you spoke to who helped you. So there's no Sophia, no goddess worth mentioning here. It's like God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just emphatic with it again and again. He says, he thanked God and always prayed for the believers in Colossus. He heard a great report of them. What did he hear? About their faith in Jesus, their love for all the saints. And this is some 
great evidence that they were genuine converts, that they had followed Christ as his disciples. Faith and love, uh, it's, it's more important than all spiritual gifts or miracles, financial contributions, the amount of baptisms, uh, converts. And I don't want to discount how glorious it is when people come to Christ and when the body does exercise gifts he gives or the obedience to baptism. But without faith, we cannot be saved. And if we do not love men whom we have seen, how can we claim we love God whom we have not seen? Faith and love, it's emphasized both in words and deeds. A couple of verses in 2 Timothy 1.13, it says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So faith and love comes out of our mouths. It's something that we say. It's a way that we say it. He also, Paul also wrote in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So whether it's love or whether it's works, faith and love are key components fundamental to the body of Christ. And so he's like, I praise God, I thank him for this great report of the faith and love you have for God and the believers. Connected with this faith and love was the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. And this hope is not a wish, but it's to anticipate. It's something that you're eagerly expecting. Some of you maybe have lunch plans, and it's you're going to your favorite place, your favorite restaurant, and you have an expectation that you'll go there and you will perhaps order something, the usual, because it's, I'm, I'm kind of like that. If I find something that I really like, I never deviate from it. Because if I do, and it's not as great as my preferred, then it's like, ah, I should have had what I always have, because I really like that. That's why I come back here, is because I like that food. Um, so there's an expectation of, of this hope. It's not like, I hope to go to heaven. It's like, I know I'm going to heaven. Because what Jesus has said and what he accomplished on Calvary, how he rose from the dead, and he's there now in heaven interceding on my behalf. And he's, I'm going to see his face someday, and when I see him, I'm going to be changed. Jesus, our hope, he rose from the dead, and there's this expectation we have that he is going to catch us up into his presence. Have you ever house sat for somebody? Usually you have the luxury. This would be really fun to have someone house at your home and say, you, don't, you won't know when I'm coming back. But I'll be coming back at some point. That would probably be a really uncomfortable house-sitting experience, to be honest. The times I have house sat, I can say, the last two or three days leading up to the uh, uh, coming back of the homeowner, there was some extra time spent in cleaning up the place, making sure it was just right. Outside and in. You want everything well presented. Now, we don't have that luxury with Jesus because he said, behold, I come quickly. It's not for you to know times and seasons that the Lord has put in his own power, but you will receive power. There's this expectancy and an urgency, but we don't know when we will see him face to face. We don't know when our lives on earth are going to end. We don't know what date we will see Jesus face to face. But it says in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope that is in us, that we will one day see Jesus face to face and be like him, seeing him as he is, that leads us to purity and holiness of living now. Because we want to please him out of love. He loves us. We want to do the things that please him. Verse 6. The gospel which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Jesus brought the gospel to us. The knowledge of Christ, it went viral through the old world. All of the Roman Empire heard of Jesus Christ. It says that while uh, Paul taught in Ephesus for two years, and this is phenomenal, he spoke the gospel, he was teaching in that house of Tyrannus for two years, a rented place. Acts 19, it says, So all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So the gospel was able to reach across racial divides and to go throughout the entire region where everyone in two years heard the name of Jesus without mobile phones or the internet or news broadcasts or anything. You think how long it used to take to deliver a, a, a parcel. If you were in another country, it would, it's phenomenal that this word, the word who became flesh, it went and spread to all people. And this gospel that they received, it kept bearing fruit in the world. In those in Colossus, those who heard the truth. Isn't it amazing that hearing the gospel has the power to change us? Not just changing what we think or what we say, but who we are. That it has that transforming power. The gospel has power that news channels and movies and novels and games, it can't touch because it changes you. That's the power of God. To take someone from darkness and into light. I heard a great testimony from a couple in this fellowship. A wife just went to get her hair done one day and came back a Christian. And I asked her husband, saying, what did you think about that? What was different? And he's like, well, she was a different person. Just Now, if I went to a hairstylist, you know, I don't think I would come home very different. You know, maybe, like, oh, that's really close to the scalp. Um, but changing your looks is nothing like what God does inside your heart. When he gives you a new heart and a new mind. He's saying, I'm making a covenant with you that you're now entered into. And you are now mine. And I am yours. That he would be our inheritance. When we think of the gospel bringing forth fruit, what's the first thing that likely comes to mind? I'll, I'll just throw it out there. Not rhetorical. What's the first thing that comes to mind? You think the gospel bearing fruit. New believers, okay, love, good. New believers, I, I would think converts, that would probably be so people who have uh, received Christ as Savior. Uh, 
But if you're thinking converts like I was, that's really only the, the start of the fruitfulness in that person. Once you receive the gospel, once you are born again and walk in light of it, fruit is produced in your life. And others partake of that fruit. The fruit of your lips, the things that you say. The fruit of your actions, the things that you do. Those, that impacts other people. Now, there's a lot of fruit varieties that will bear fruit once a year or twice a year, but uh, the gospel is perennially fruitful. It's always bringing forth fruit. There's always some fruit there that's growing and uh, ready to eat. And ungrafted trees, they only bear one kind of fruit. It, it looks a certain way, right? If you have a, 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 a pumpkin vine, it's just going to bring forth pumpkins. Now, they may look a little different from one another, but they're all the same thing. However, when we bear fruit in Christ, it looks different. There's a great variety, uh, a diversity with that fruit. And we're going to look at 10 different things, ways, and this is not in any way uh, an ordered list or an exhaustive list, but 10 ways that the gospel is fruitful in our lives as Christians. The first is fruit of repentance. You didn't just repent one time when you came to Christ, but as God's convicted you, you've continued to repent. There's been things that you repented of. That's in Matthew 3, 8. The fruit of obedience. Once the gospel takes root in our hearts by faith, we begin to want to please God out of love for him. Not because we have to obey this law. Freedom. That's a fruit. Romans 6.22, it says, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Holy living. Purity. The gospel promotes holy living to those who walk in it. How about the fruit of the Spirit? That one's pretty straightforward, right? Why don't you turn to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. And the really cool thing about the fruit of the Spirit is there's the works of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit. And when you have the fruit of the Spirit being born, you won't be walking according to the flesh. So it's like good fruit is replacing rotten bad fruit. Galatians 5.22, after talking about the works of the flesh, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Good fruit, like love, joy, and peace, it's produced instead of adultery and fornication and envy and heresy and uncleanness, all those things listed before. Another fruit the gospel produces, the fruit of righteousness, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We're made righteous by faith, and then we are enabled by God and the Spirit who dwells within us to live righteously, to make choices that please God. Fruit of the lips is a sacrifice of praise. So you're praising God now. You, our mouths used to be full of cursing and bitterness and resentment. But now having been born again, there, 
you'll find that those other things have begun to drop off. We still fall. We make mistakes. We're not perfect with our lips. We overstep our bounds. We, we say things that we shouldn't, and the Holy Spirit convicts us. And then there's that fruit of repentance, right? Think how often you've praised and thanked, you've prayed to God, you've sung a song to him that was never in your heart before coming to Christ. You didn't think of doing that. Why would you? Acts 19, 17 through 20, it's, not, uh, it's actually four different things that are mentioned there. When the gospel took hold in a region, it said the word of God was fruitful, it prevailed, and it was marked with fear of God, and confession of sin. Those are things that the gospel brings. We begin to get away from our lives these influences that are sinful and selfish. The word of God begins to prevail and make an impact on the way that we think and the way we live. Confession of sin. Things that we used to hide, now we'll confess to the Lord and he can free us. Another fruit, self-sacrifice for the good of others. We see that in Jesus, right? He's compared to a grain of wheat that died, and it was buried and produced much grain. Using that same example, conversions, yes. The fruit of new believers, reproduction like grain in the parable of the sower. It re re reproduced after its own kind. Now, we aren't to reproduce after our own kind in Christ. We're to make disciples of Jesus. So we're not to try to multiply ourselves but to get other people loving Jesus, following Jesus, serving him, who love like him. Lastly, fruit of the gospel is doing the good works God's called us to do. Ephesians 2.10. The gospel is a gift that keeps giving. How God, he has given us himself, he has given us great promises, he has given us new life, eternal life, abundant life with him that we enjoy now. And the fruit of that is all good stuff that comes from the Lord. Epaphras, he was a faithful minister to the church, and he told them of their love in the spirit. And God's love, that's chief evidence that we are of him. It's to undergird the things that we do or we choose not to do. Jesus demonstrated his love not only in dying for us, but in being subject to his parents, in obeying the will of the Father who sent him, how he humbled himself. He showed love by the things that he said, how he said them, and why he said them. I, can, I find that I fall down in those areas sometimes where I might say a technically correct thing, but the reason why I said it was sinful or proud. There was something there that was not of God and of the flesh. God's love had knit the believers in Coloss with the body of Christ, and Jesus was their head. There's no doubt about that. They were genuine believers that he's talking to. Verse 9. Back in Colossians chapter 1. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Since they were born again, they were filled with the Spirit, 
Paul continues to pray for them. It's pretty cool, right? He's like, I've heard about your love. I've heard about your faith. That's why I'm praying for you. (laughs) Not like, you know, I have heard that you've not been very loving lately, that you've been unfaithful, so I'm going to pray for you. No, it's because they were loving the Lord, because they were born again. He's like, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, and he prays these great things, that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will in as wisdom and spiritual understanding. This word that he uses here is epigenosis. So Gnostics, that's the second part of it. The Gnostics claim to have hidden or secret wisdom or knowledge. He's like, I want you to have epigenosis of God and his will. So it's not just secret stuff. It's a full revelation. He's saying, I want you to have an over a, a super abundance of knowledge of God and his will. That's because they were deficient in the knowledge of God's will. A lack of knowledge, it has a negative knock-on effect. Imagine if a farmer didn't think about um, planning for next harvest, and he threshed all the grain and ate all the grain and didn't think like, oh yeah, I need to actually save some to plant it for next year. Well, his family could starve, his animals, his herds could, could suffer because of that lack of knowledge. The disciples, they lacked knowledge of God's will. Remember when Jesus said, I am going to be betrayed, I am going to be crucified. Peter is like, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. But it was God's will. It was the will of the Father. And Jesus addressed Peter for that in Matthew 16, 23. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not mindful of the things of God, but of men. Peter wanted his will to be done. He had an idea of how Jesus was going to impact the nation. But God the Father knew, and Jesus too knew, to whom it had been revealed that he would go to the cross and die for many, that many nations would be sprinkled, that all could come to repentance and trust in him. Knowledge is critical. It isn't everything. Because... uh, Knowing something and doing it are two different things, right? Knowing what is right doesn't mean that you always do what is right. And sometimes we do what we know is wrong. So knowledge, it didn't really help us in that case. It it actually condemns us. But it's God's will that we would be like a tree spoken of in Psalm 1-3. It says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That's God's will for those who trust in him, that we would be fruitful. What's not mentioned here is that it's not easy to be a tree. When there's fire and flood and frost and strong wind and lightning and hail, It's not easy to be a tree when that creek that's been coming by is now dried up. When circumstances are difficult. And Paul prays that they would be increasing in their knowledge, again, epigenosis of God. That they would have a better knowledge of God and his will. Because it's one thing to know Bible trivia or to memorize verses, but totally different to know God, to know him to trust him and obey him. Because you go, oh, I trust him. I'm, I'm worrying about this, though. 
a lot of times we we are inconsistent. We are inconstant. We we are like up and down and up and down. And God is faithful. He is true. And we need to be reminded. Those people in Coloss, they believed that you had to go through a lot of spiritual channels to reach God. In Philippians 3, Paul said he counted all things lost that he might know him. The power of his resurrection, Jesus, and the fellowship of his suffering. He says, I've given everything away to know God. To to even have the fellowship of his suffering. God can be known And Jesus is the way. He continues praying for them in verse 11 and 12, that they would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. As we finished Ephesians last week, We saw how it's God's will for us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, that we'd have on the full armor of God, that we'd be able able to withstand the enemy's attacks, having done all to stand. And the power demonstrated in Christ's victory over Satan's temptations, these miraculous signs that he did, the words that he spoke, his resurrection, his ascension, That's the power of the Holy Spirit that operates in us. Because it says here that we'd be strengthened according to his glorious power. When you think of glorious power, we think like big and strong and untouchable and above it all, like unfazed by life or the things that happen. But realize this, this power, it was demonstrated in humility, in service, in faith. This victory we experience in Christ is not without pains. The apostles, they demonstrated the glorious power that Paul writes of here when they boldly spoke of Jesus, then they were arrested, threatened, beaten, and it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. That's where the power is, right there. They rejoiced despite suffering. And the threat was still there. Hey, if you guys keep doing this, guess what's going to happen to you? We've beaten you today. What's going to happen tomorrow? And they rejoiced. The glorious power was seen in Stephen, not just in proclaiming, not doing mighty signs and wonders or, or being a deacon and doing that office as unto the Lord or his address of the Sanhedrin, But as the stones were bashing his brains, he said, Father, hold this, do not hold this against him. Forgiveness. That's God's power being displayed in a very unexpected way. This power was on display when Barnabas and others, they gave of their own possessions to the church for those in need. They were willing to part with things because they saw a need and trusted the apostles that they would see that it was carried out right. This power was seen in Paul when he was arrested. Wrongfully, he did nothing wrong. For years, he continued in prison but rejoiced because he had a Savior in Jesus, because he knew God. 
with, with, with thanksgiving. You read Philippians, right? It's all about the joy. He's like, oh man, I'm rejoicing. Keep rejoicing, people. This is a, that was the second time in prison. We like the idea of being strengthened. We like the idea of glorious power. You know, like Thor holding up the, like the lightning coursing and like force pushing people. And like, that's cool for a guy anyway. I don't know about ladies, what power looks like for you. Like getting through that cross stitch quick or making a great souffle or, or, or being Wonder Woman with your feminine bracelets and tearing stuff up. I, I don't remember. What was that? I'm just messing with you guys. You know that. <laughs> we love the idea of power. We like the idea of having our way. We like the idea of being able to affect something. Like, okay, I'm going to do this, and this is going to be the result. I can change that. I can do this. We like the idea of being able to do things, right? You like being able to drive. You like to be able to have freedom to do what you want to do. That's just natural to people. But we can gloss over the next part because it says, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. That's something that we didn't think about when we think about glorious power, resurrection, you know, power over sin and darkness and the light just blasting it away and having, you know, basically being a, a spiritual superhero that has its appeal. But we need God's power to be patient while we're in pain, while we are struggling, and while we're hurting, and there seems to be no end or respite in sight. God's glorious power, it's seen in long suffering and joy with chronic pain, with grief, with loss of health or a job or separation from family, having a debt that's just hanging over your head. Separation from family and friends with no change apparent. That's when the glorious power of God begins to be displayed with all patience and long-suffering with joy. Have you ever heard about breaking the fourth wall? So the fourth wall is when you're watching a movie or watching a play, and the, the whole movie, it's like the audience isn't there. You get to be inside the room with them. Breaking the fourth wall is when the actor looks right at the camera and addresses the audience, those who have been watching the whole time. So I'm going to do that a little bit today. I'm going to break the fourth wall. So it's kind of a, a surprise when you see that. But I know that suffering is not theoretical for a lot of people here. I know that a lot of you guys are struggling with stuff, that there are hard things happening that you are powerless to change. And some have suffered for a long time with stuff. There's upheaval in your hearts, in your homes. Uh, there's fiery darts that have burned you, where you, you feel the sting. There's offense, there's, there's pains that, that you've just had for a long time. And it's like your faith can be hanging by a thread. Genuine faith, it's true but it's hard. I want to emphasize an aspect of God's will you may have forgotten, and I often forget. It's at times God's will for us to suffer 
knowing that in him is abundant consolation. Jesus was betrayed, he was hated, he was rejected, he was crucified, so we could be born again and receive eternal life. Paul was struck blind because God intended to show him some things. He said, I must show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Not like how I'm going to promote him and make him just a, a, a preacher to the nations. He didn't put it that way. He said, he's going to suffer for me. And I want to show him. I want to show him right at the beginning that he's going to suffer. Romans 8, it says, if we suffer with Christ, then we will be glorified with him. And the sufferings of this present life are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us, the glorious fruit of the gospel now and for eternity in heaven. Paul says plainly in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And when you're in pain, when you're being persecuted, so that's someone attacking you, that's somebody coming after you, that, it, that's hurt, that hurts. And it's hard. There's no balm for us except in Jesus Christ. And that's why this letter is so poignant. And when one of us suffers, the Bible says, the whole body suffers along with it. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. We're going to read 12 and 13 and then 19 for the sake of time and emphasis. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. I don't look at my feet very carefully quite often. That's a really weird way to start a sentence, but I'm just going to go with it. If I kick something and my toe really hurts, guess what I'm going to do? My whole body is going to bend, which is not easy for me, and I am going to remove that sock, and I'm going to look and see, wow, what did I do to my toe just now? And that's how when one part of the body of Christ is in pain and hurting, that other parts of the body, they are mobilized to support and to help that person. And so I will apply first aid, so my hands are involved, my mind is involved, and I walk to the toilet or wherever the first aid supplies are, and I begin to bandage the wound. And then I'm careful about the shoes that I wear, because my foot is sore, and the activities I do. And it's the same thing in the body of Christ. It says, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the... This is verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God Commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. When we're suffering, a lot of our effort is put into stopping suffering. That is our, if I'm in pain, I want pain to stop. That's my first objective. And when we're hurting, we just want the circumstance to change. We want to feel some relief. That's totally natural. But it says here that we could be suffering according to the will of God, 
committing our souls to him in doing good as to our faithful creator, the one who created us, the one who created us to feel pain. He feels it. He knows it. He is able to heal. He is able to restore and to keep us joyful even in the midst of suffering. That's when his glorious power is on display. Now, I have a little object lesson here. Uh, it's actually kind of a big object lesson. but So this is a uh, butternut squash or a pumpkin from Regina's garden. Um, Jesus compared himself to a grain of wheat that, fall, that fell. right, And from that grain, much grain was produced. Now, after we're born again, this pumpkin is really a picture of your life in a sense. This one pumpkin, it's fully developed. It has, we know, it has seeds inside, right? Like, that's how this is going to be fruitful. But as long as the seeds are inside of it, it's not going to reach its potential. So how is that going to happen? Well, in our lives, we can be fruitful, as it says, through the things we say, through the things we do. But sometimes, there must be a breaking. There must be a cutting. I have to cut this pumpkin open to get those seeds out of there so they can be planted and produce many vines, many good plants, and fruit, fruits can grow. We often need the sharp point of God's word to cut and pierce our hearts. We need to be cut, and we say, Lord, put the knife down. And you're like, don't. Don't come at me with that. But his word is sharp and powerful, and it pierces. And it's with that piercing that we begin to be more fruitful than we were before. The word of God, it's compared to seed that's sown. And when it's sown in good soil, it produces much fruit. So the words that we say, they can be fruitful. But other times, we need to have circumstances tough enough to crack our hard exterior so that we will look to God, and then the fruitfulness comes. We can rejoice then, because we have confessed that we are insufficient. We are not able, and only He is. And we're only looking to Him now, when we used to look to ourselves, and we used to look to our own efforts, or our accomplishments, or our past success. We resist it tooth and nail, but God allows pain, and He allows suffering to accomplish His purposes. We don't always know what those are. And knowing what it is, that's not enough. We need him. Because if you, were, if you put yourself in, in, in Jesus' position, let's say, and saying, you're going to be crucified for the sins of the world, just knowing that, it wouldn't make me feel any better about those nails going through my hands and my feet. Knowing that it's doing something for somebody else and for me in the future, what comfort is that to me then? But Jesus, it says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, it is now at the right hand of the Father. In all of our suffering, in all of our pains, there is a purpose that God knows. He is able to redeem it, and we can rejoice in him in the midst of it. This isn't like, I don't want anyone to get the idea, like, oh, if you're suffering, well, you need to. It's not at all what I'm saying. But suffering... It is the will of God in our lives in degrees so that he can be glorified, so we can joyfully trust him and see that, man, I've been looking to my own strength. 
I have been, I really haven't trusted God like I said I did, or I thought I did. This is what Jesus said in John 15, 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Do you want to be fruitful? I think every believer would say, absolutely. Yes, I want to be fruitful. And sometimes fruitfulness comes from suffering, from pain, from difficulty. But as we abide in him and we increase in knowledge of him and his will, we can walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering with joy and thanksgiving to our God who loves us. And he won't leave you. He won't forsake you. Without him, we can do nothing. Let's thank him. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word and your truth and allowing the pains that we suffer in life to have significance and meaning. Lord, I know that you never wound us without a purpose and that you redeem everything for good. And I pray for those who are going through difficult times and a, and a long trying season and those who have yet to go through those long hard seasons that you allow. Lord, I pray that we would not be dry in drought. We would not be uh, shocked by the cold, but we would rejoice in you, our Savior, our King and Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Having God the Father, man, you, it's so incredible, Lord, what you do for us, how you provide for us, how you have blessed us in every possible way. I pray that we would be fruitful, Lord, that if it's, if it's a breaking that's required, that we would be broken before you. Lord, help your word to pierce our hearts, that our lives might please you, that we could know you better and do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.